Hello and welcome to Review, the show where we get to chat to fascinating people from the Merging Universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew, and this is part two of my conversation with Ed Niedermeyer, the Senior Editor for Mobility Technology at The Drive. We're going to leap back into our chat where we continue to discuss Tesla business practices amongst many other subjects. Okay, you talk about how there's certain areas of Tesla or their business practices or their marketing appear a little bit superficial. Can you expand on that a little bit to people who perhaps are not in the know or you know aren't, shall we say, lucky enough? to follow this stuff as much as you do. <laughs> yeah, um so I think I think you know the the best way to explain it is that is that they they are very good at creating perceptions. In fact, in some ways, you know, the most fundamental thing that that Tesla does is is create a narrative, right? So so it doesn't make money. It hasn't made money building and selling cars the way a traditional automaker does. What it has had success making and selling are narratives. Um, and perceptions, right, about a whole a whole host of things, whether it's, you know, saving the planet uh, environmentally, whether it's, um, you know, revolutionizing the car um, uh, in a whole lot of ways. And, and this is what, you know, the, the battery swap situation really showed me was this was presented as this, you know, brilliant technological innovation that was going to be, you know, something that changed how people saw and used electric vehicles. And it turned out it was a, a complete facade that was really just being used to, uh, to take advantage of a loophole in the, in the credit system in California. Um, and, and they made hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, to create this system that didn't, that, that nobody really ever actually used. And so, you know, seeing that and understanding that made me just start looking at, in a whole bunch of other areas. And, you know, safety is, is one that I kind of ended up sort of looking at uh, quite a bit because, you know, Tesla has been very, you know, much promoting the idea that their cars are safer than everyone's every, everyone else's. Yeah. And, and certainly in terms of the, the engineering of the car itself, you know, they, they have done some, some real things. It's not all just perception, right? The best uh, narratives are the ones that have, you know, there's enough truth there. Uh, and then you build on that, that, true thing and and you make it much much bigger to the point where it, it it then sort of ceases to become true at a certain point and you know one of the things i found is is with safety yes you know they they engineered the car quite well um to survive crashes however their practices in terms of safety are are not very good and one of the stories that i that i found that you know and and it's funny because one of the reasons I did this book is because I wrote a lot of stories and published them online and they just never people. And, you know, I, to this day, I tell people these stories and they're like, wait a second, that happened. And I was like, yeah, I, I wrote about that. Uh, no one, no one really noticed though. Uh, Cause no one wanted to notice, yeah. but yeah. So, I mean, like uh, uh, there was this, you know, issues with, um, with contactors uh, in the main battery pack, which is, you know, essentially a, uh, a safety device between the, the battery and the high voltage line. And, and uh, these contactors would fail Suddenly, when people were on the road and they would just be on the freeway or whatever, and they would just lose power suddenly. So, which which was quite similar to around the same time the the General Motors ignition switch defect. Of course, that happened for mm. ten years, and we know that you know 124 people died in that case. That was an extremely terrible situation of corporate malfeasance. And I'm not saying that the Tesla situation is the same in in that respect, but it was definitely the same in terms of the the same kind of problem. And also, Tesla did not recall it. And what they did instead of recalling, and, and by the way, in the U.S., the, the law is that, you know, if you have a defect that doesn't affect safety, you can do what's called a technical service bulletin, and you can just sort of fix it at people's leisure. But if there is a defect okay. that, that affects safety, you know, you have to recall it. And, and 
there is a, a principle basically in in you know that goes way back with NHTSA that if a vehicle suddenly loses power that that is safety related right there there are safety implications yes. to that i know it's <laughs> Strange that that would be even controversial, but surprisingly it has been. And and so, you know, I found that, you know, Tesla was basically going around contacting people. They weren't they weren't even doing a technical service bulletin in some of these cases. They were just sending sort of the same stock email to people saying, come in now because our remote diagnostics have found that we could improve your experience with your car by by, you know, upgrading this thing. And they would couch it in this language. Uh... And it really, what they were doing was a stealth recall. And that is, you know, a huge no-no. And yet somehow, you know, and I think in part because, you know, they had built so effectively this this idea that they cared more about safety than anyone else. Well, yes, there's the famous, if you don't support autonomous vehicles, you're killing people. Right, cool. right. <laughs> and so autopilot is a whole other a whole other thing. One thing before we get to that, though, too, also yeah, yeah. Is, is, is I think one important piece of understanding this perception management thing was the story that actually got Tesla to really attack me. And that was the one about non-disclosure agreements. Well, it was an interesting case because there, there was a, a guy on a forum who said that his suspension had unexpectedly broke mm. and uh, that Tesla had repaired it and had required, you know, and this is the goodwill account um, repair that I think we discussed earlier, that they, they were uh, repairing these things. It wasn't technically a warranty repair. It was called a goodwill repair. So they didn't have to reserve extra warranty money, which people then would have said, oh, there's problems with, with Teslas because they're having to reserve more money and uh, for warranties. And so, and on top of that, when you would get a warranty, uh, not a warranty, a goodwill repair from Tesla, either at a discount or for free, you would then have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And that prevented in, in the U.S. also our regulatory system works with the, the NHTSA, our safety regulator, has two sources of data. One is from the company itself. When it feels like reporting, self-reporting a, a defect or a problem, uh, they can do that. Uh, the, only other, the only other source of data that that regulator has is when consumers themselves file complaints. Oh, and, so, okay. and so Tesla was, through these, defect, uh, through these, uh, these non-disclosure agreements, it was preventing people from reporting defects to the regulators, cutting them off from the only independent source of, of data. Um, also, another really interesting part of this is that the culture in the Tesla forums was such that when people would complain about problems, oftentimes people would come from the investor side of the forum to the more sort of owner side of the forum. And, and this is a very interesting split in Tesla, Tesla world where owners want to share information, whether it's good or bad, they want to know, right? They want to know, is something's going to be wrong with my car? I want to know about it. But then the yeah. investor, the people who are, who are in the investor forum, who are much more of this sort of radical, you know, highly motivated, essentially you know, PR militia, frankly, <laughs> will come in and they will just shut these people down. And they'll say and, – and literally, I mean, there's, there's sections where it's, you know, do not report defects to NHTSA because that will just be used to hurt Tesla. Uh, you're making this up. Uh, you must be in bed with the show. I mean, all this stuff that we see with with reporters. And so there was this this culture that was really both within Tesla with the non-disclosure agreements and then online and sort of the community around it that was really oriented around shutting down complaints. And and this was all part of this building this perception that Tesla does all these great things. And, you know, maybe there's a few little problems here and there, but but those are being exaggerated. And it's because there was a very active effort to to silence and discredit anybody who was talking about these these complaints, even if they were Tesla owners, and so that story, you know, 
Tesla did not, you know, so, so NHTSA, when I wrote the story about non-disclosure agreements, NHTSA said, this is totally unacceptable. Um, Tesla has to change uh, these these agreements. Uh, they cannot Quite, do this. Yes. Yeah, right? <laughs> and um, As you would hope they would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And instead of Tesla saying, you know what, this was a mistake. Uh, we didn't mean to stop anyone from. They did say this. They did say we didn't mean anyone to, to to prevent anyone from reporting stuff to to regulators. But then they turned around and and basically said that I was trying to prove that they had a suspension defect. That there was this crazy Australian guy, Keith Wiveney, or, or Keith Leach, or one of his many uh, noms de guerre. Uh, it was, you know, putting these, you quote, fraudulent uh, reports in the defect uh, uh, database at NHTSA and that there was this whole conspiracy and that I was working for the shorts. And, you know, I'd been I'd been um, basically, you know, I created the Tesla death watch and that I've been doing it nonstop since 2008 and all. They just lied about me um, and frankly, in ways that were calculated, I think, to do as much damage to me professionally as as possible and completely destroyed distracting from from what the story was really about, which was the fact that they were – and I said in the story, I can't prove if a defect exists. Only NHTSA can. And the problem here at this situation is that NHTSA can't determine if a defect exists if they're being cut off from information. And what Tesla is doing here is cutting them off from information. There's a couple of things in that story. I mean, one of them is – which seems – I mean, we, we did discuss this uh, earlier, but the way that narratives are used to manipulate or – false narratives are used to manipulate perception of a person or a story does seem to be now the fallback a lot in society yeah. not just not just saying tesla but in society in general that people feel they can just say well you know basically say that's fake news yep carry on as we were and that gets accepted which is i mean okay let's let's fix the planet how do we how do we solve that as 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 journalists, mm. is our only defense to just keep reporting what we find, the facts, that sort of thing? I, I think so. And and I think that the the reason that, um, you know, sort of these principles of discourse that I believe in, I think you believe in, um, and a lot of journalists believe in, uh, which are sort of under assault with this sort of trend that you're talking about, uh, the reason those have become such foundational values in, in our society or, or were before this sort of you know, new era uh, is because they just work and they work over the long term. And it's sort of a there's sort of a parallel here, too, with, you know, the reason we don't see lots of instances of of companies like Tesla in the automobile business is because what they've done is very successful in the short term, but I think not sustainable in the long term. And that over a long period of time, you know, things regress to the mean of what works. And that's why automakers mm. move slowly. Um, that's why they test for, for years and years before they put a car on the market. This is why the regulatory system works this way, you know. So, so, and and I think the the what you're seeing now, um, kind of fascinatingly, is that this culture of saying that you know any criticism is uh come you know must come from a hater that criticism can't play a constructive role with a company mm. that's starting to eat itself, and so you're seeing bloggers, people like uh you know Fred Lambert at Electrek who you know has attacked me numerous times for for spreading fud and 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 attacking tesla and being a hater and all this stuff and now he is trying to argue that you know actually you know critical stories he's been writing more critical stories recently of tesla and he's trying to argue that that well actually you know critical stories support these companies because it makes them stronger it helps them identify problems they need to fix to become better companies and 
the the fan base that he so radicalized basically he played probably a bigger role in radicalizing the culture around tesla than anybody and now mm. that he's trying to sort of walk back it's consuming him and now he's considered to be this hater and i think it shows like you know the french revolution is a is a fascinating historical parallel right because it when when things get radicalized they tend to eat consume themselves revolutions eat their own and yep. they're not sustainable and i think that you know in the car business particularly you know you ha things have to be set up to work not just to maximize things from quarter to quarter or over the next couple of years or to raise the next fundraising round things have to be optimized for the long term because this is a long term business and so i think that with pr as well as with you know everything from from testing to the regulatory strategy to just about everything Tesla has optimized for the short term, and that's why they've done so well. But I think that we are already seeing how that short term optimization creates real vulnerability over the long term. And especially the, the aggressive culture that they've created really consumes itself and goes and sort of it sort of separates itself self increasingly from reality because, you know, you can't any criticism. You can't look at the facts. The facts don't matter. It's critical and therefore mm. it's bad and we must dismiss it. Yep. And that that separates you from reality. And then and then once that divergence goes, uh, uh, takes place, it just they just get further and further from reality. And that becomes unsustainable. And I think that's what we're seeing with Tesla now. It is interesting seeing one of the loudest cheerleaders being turned upon. I mean, he got called out by Musk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you see, you think, I mean, that must have been a dark day in the Lambert household. <laughs> When when that happened, all I can say is is he he made this bed. Yes, absolutely. And he doesn't want to sleep in it anymore. And and I'm sorry, but like you you know he has to. Those are those he's made his choices. And like I said, he in the in the 2015 2016 period. And it's fascinating how much things have changed. There's so much more critical media coverage of Tesla now, sort of since 2018, than there was back when I first started doing it in 2015 and 2016. And and I was sort of alone. And and so, you know, it was very easy to attack me because nobody was, nobody, very few people would defend me. There wasn't this huge sort of army of, of you know, Tesla Q critics on, on, on Twitter the way there is today. There was some mm. community, but it was much, much smaller. And, you know, in those early days, Lambert was really the one radicalizing it. Now it's sort of snowballed. And now there are these other outlets like like Clean Technica and uh, oh, Inside. What a dreadful and, place that is. And Inside That's EVs. Just awful. Well, yeah. And, and so now Musk, they they are trying to, they they basically out electric to electric, right? They, yeah. Yeah. They I mean they've got a they've got a page of telling people who visit their site these are the bad journalists. Yeah. Yeah. Because it depends and they've got a chart for anyone who doesn't know, they've got a chart on their website that they keep updated for uh, a bad journalist is someone who reports negatively about or what is perceived to be negatively about Tesla in uh, in the press. I mean I, I'm continually disappointed I don't make anything on there, but I don't I try not to talk about them anymore. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean this is that's not journalism. That's not that's just stirring up a hate mob. Yeah, yeah. If, and has it has no place in in any journalism, let alone car journalism. That that should that should never happen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, saying something is bad, regardless of the facts, regardless of how true it is, right? Journalists should be in the in the business of of what is true and what isn't. Yeah, and to to judge things based on the sentiment rather than the factual accuracy and legitimacy is yeah something very different than than what I. We consider journalism, but but the practical effect of that is that now Musk can go to these guys 
when Tez, when Electrek, you know, who was the standard bearer for this this culture, when when they are not you know aggressive enough or when they do not toe the line enough, he just goes to these others uh, inside EVs and 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 Clean Technica and plays them off each other, and then they're all in a competition to be the most positive and do the most sort of free PR for them. And mm-hmm. this has worked quite well for him. But but again, we see already that that this eats its own right and and it's not a sustainable yep. approach and so i think yeah as far as i'm concerned it's like you know i'm i'm just continuing to re- report this stuff um and i am convinced that uh the way in so many ways the way tesla is is pursuing its strategies uh it just simply isn't sustainable and so it's not on me to to make it not work or whatever i I just no. am focused on the, the the truth and getting getting the truth out there, and um, you know, you see, uh, this stuff is not lasting. No, just and I, I don't want to make this all about Tesla this this episode because that, that's very tedious. Yeah, but you are so you have done so much work on it, and it is it quite it has been quite a, a central point of of the work you have done. Yep. But just talking about the the culture, but the fan base. Why do you think there is such vitriolic extremes mm. there is the the lot that that nothing that tesla do is wrong or musk pronounces about the company is wrong in any way and then you've got the other extreme that is nothing is good <laughs> nothing yeah. is good we we will there is no uh, it, this seems a company that has fostered these extremes much more than any others yes yeah so it is a very complicated and multi-layered situation i think and i think sort of one of the foundational parts of it is that um the electric car fan base sort of there's been a culture around electric cars for decades now that has very much seen the technology as being mature since you know even the 70s but again in the 90s and there've been these sort of different waves where they say okay now the technology is really mature but it's the oil companies holding it back it's the big car companies mm-hmm. holding it back it's this holding it back it's that holding it back and so there's you know and and so Tesla is really the first time where a car company has come out uh, a startup no less and and really had real success with an electric car and that so I think part of it is is just there's this foundation of electric car fans being very much feeling like it's them against the world and that and that they are not only morally in the in the right but also technologically that you know things are are ready but it's just not happening for some reason and so it must mm. be something else and there's always been a conspiratorial aspect to that and i think tesla has exploited that very very well um for example the the big oil conspiracy thing which which tesla talks about all the time musk talks about all the time um, that really does date back to the the 70s and and the 1990s. Actually, um, these this was really fundamental part of EV culture. And in the 1990s, I would add, you know, there was some truth to it in that uh, when California was first creating its uh, zero emission vehicle mandate, oil companies did oppose it, and they did do have these PR campaigns to try and oppose electric vehicles. So that was it, mm-hmm. again, there's always a kernel of truth in 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 even the most fevered conspiracy theories and um or at least the, the successful ones and so that that's certainly part of it part of it is that tesla has clearly um exploited this and 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 fueled this right and with the dynamic we were just discussing with sort of playing different media outlets off against each other giving access to the ones that are most friendly and therefore you know and the most extreme and sort of creating this competition to see who could be the most extreme but mm-hmm. i think one of the real fundamental things that has changed it. And this was something that was new to me. I had not seen this or, or dealt with this really in, in my coverage of the auto industry is the, the 
is the the stock phenomenon, the stock market phenomenon. And I think the stock market, mm. one of the things I've really learned is the stock market really is this like incredibly polarized place. And more important, people people in the stock market, because the whole thing is is so based on perception and like momentum and sort of where are things going and everyone's, you know, in a market is trying to figure out who thinks what and 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 what's gonna happen next. And if you haven't got constant massive growth, then you're failing and yeah, so this is also that I'm saying this is the this is the other part of it too. Maybe even it it should come before the the stock market part, which is we've seen technology change so profoundly. I think that's a huge part of this as well. We've seen, you know, we've gone from flip phones to smartphones with app stores and and just all of the the entire economy that's been built on top of that has just exploded out of nothing in a very short mm-hmm. amount of time and I think that's really affected people's belief that this will also happen with cars. If it happened with phones, it's going to happen with cars. Well, cars are just mobile phones now, aren't they? They're just they're just uh, phones or computers on wheels. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and and I think that this is this is one of the divides in all this is that people and and you'll notice this when you see these debates online. The people who are most skeptical of Tesla are the ones who are most familiar with the auto industry, mm-hmm. and the people who are the biggest fans, generally speaking, know almost nothing about the auto industry. And it's because of this divide between sort of this idea that that tech just disrupts things and changes things fundamentally versus people who have experience with the auto industry. They understand it takes a long time to develop new models, new technologies, to validate them, to get them ready for production, to scale them up, to build the supply chain, to get the regulatory pieces in place. This is a, a an intensely complex and, and uh, slow moving for a reason, an evolutionary for a reason kind of a business, um, which is fundamentally different than technology. And, and this is also one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is that you know Tesla brings high-tech culture to the car business in a lot of ways, a startup-style culture. Move fast and break things. Don't spend a lot of time testing. Just get a minimum viable product out to the market. Fix it as you can you know, uh, after it's been released. These are, these are software practices that they're bringing into the car business. And they work really well in terms of public perception because people believe that I mean, software is "quote unquote" eating the world in a lot of ways, and people believe that that's happening with cars, and it will, and it it is happening car, with cars, and it will continue to, but just in at, at the auto industry's pace. You know, some of some of that pace will yeah. pick up, but there are certain things about making extremely complex physical objects that you just can't change fully with software. Yep. And so, uh, you know, so people people believe and want to believe that that a tech company can just fundamentally change things and and bring up the pace of of innovation and all this and and this also plays into you know these things are great in the short term because it's exciting and cars come out faster and you have these software updates and these things like that but but they're ultimately not very sustainable um for for a whole host of reasons and then and then that sort of perceptive you know split in perceptions carries over into the stock market um where you have this divide between sort of uh, momentum investors who tend to look for the hot new stock uh, in from the tech companies, um, and we've seen sort of several bubbles of this, you know, since the 1990s, and they all kind of rush in and 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 just throw cash at these at these rapidly growing but often unprofitable businesses, and then you have these sort of old-fashioned value investors who look at it and they say, well, th- this is crazy. There's no business here. You know, they're just, mm. they're growing for the sake of growing. And and there's no even evidence that that there's going to ever be a sustainable business here. And Tesla is clearly emblematic of that divide. And so that's one of the, 
the reasons also that this is just so so divided. And then I think also, you know, you just look at the rest of our society, um, certainly in politics, which, you know, my background is in, and uh, a lot of the sort of uh, attitudes that people bring to discourse seem, <laughs> in Tesla, seem very similar to those that they bring to, to discourse in politics. Yes. It, I, I There are times I have the misfortune to see some of the threads and I, and I just, it's, well, you just swap the words out and it could be for any subject you know, a, a, a political thing. You change the names of the people tweeting mm. and just swap them around. It's difficult to spot the difference, really, in that definitely in the tone and the manner in which some of the strategies are are taken as in getting personal, mm-hmm. uh, rather than deal with the the facts or the argument itself, because you can't. Now, when it comes to the facts, they they get found out, so they change they change it away from that to make it something else yeah yeah and and then you you attack right instead of instead of dealing with with the facts uh you just attack the person who who brought up the facts which to me is like a a extremely alien concept because you know the facts are what matter right who says the facts who brings up the facts who uncovers the facts it doesn't matter you're you're you know um what, what matters is the facts and so i for me it's been incredibly frustrating for when i you know report something you know and they say well that's that's factually incorrect. And I said, well, what, what about it is factually incorrect? And they'll be like, oh, it's too much. I can't even, can't even go through all of the things that are wrong with this. And besides which, you know, you work for the shorts and you've been writing a Tesla death watch since 2008. I said, well, you care about facts. You just said two lies about me that you have no evidence to support. Here in my story, I have evidence to support everything that I'm claiming. Tell me where I got something wrong. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to even deal with you because you're, you're, you know, you work for the shorts. And, and it's just, it's so maddening because it's like, and, and then they go and they rant about, oh, you know, the, the, the media these days is just so terrible. And it's, it's just, you know, once upon a time, you know, the media was objective and it's just not there anymore. And it's just so, uh, it, it really, I mean, that's one of the, the things that really makes me kind of wonder, you know, is this something that we can kind of come back from as a society? And, and I don't know. Without dragging both ourselves down into a pit of despair here, <laughs> I, I I think we're going to struggle for many many years. Yeah, I really do. This there there will have to be a f- another fundamental shift. Uh, well, I think global now because of the way we're all connected and everything. There will need to be another financial, you know, something of the proportions of the financial crash in two thousand and eight to to shake people up and scare them yeah to the manner that they are reacting like they are now because I, so much of this is on fear but i don't know fear of what <laughs> that's the problem you can't you can't help and address this type of discourse and lack of it if because there doesn't appear to be a, an obvious an obvious core to it that that can be addressed yeah yeah no and 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 I do I mean I do think a lot of this is right and I think certainly one of the things that gives a lot of vitriol to this topic is is the sort of a sense of hopelessness about sort of the environmental conditions, right? And like that's mm. something that I I sympathize with. I mean, I I spend every weekend I I go out into nature. I love nature. I love the environment. I I spend all my time in it when I when I have free time. And so I sympathize with people who are concerned about the environment and who feel like you know, uh, uh, it may be very difficult or impossible to you know halt or reverse some of the environmental impacts that are that are that are taking place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a frustration, isn't it? It's a it's a look we can see this but no one appears to be listening and I can understand that 
that frustration where you just feel like you're screaming into the ether and you know it it's no one's listening everyone's got their head down but for for so many people it's so vast mm. talking of the environmental issue yeah. it's so big and so huge i think they one try to ignore it and two don't know what they can do. Yeah. And I think that Tesla, you know, Tesla gives people hope. And I understand what that. I mean, yeah. that that makes sense. And and it, it gives people hope because in particular, what one of the things that they've done really well is recognize that environmental sort of hair shirts aren't enough. You you have to make something yeah. that people actually <laughs> want, but that is, yeah. you know, at least theoretically good for the environment. And 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 Tesla has done that. And I think people just don't realize that. Tesla scale, even with their, you know, they, they say they're going to get to a million units a year in a couple of years or whatever, which are way behind on and, and all that. But, but, but even if they were to achieve that goal, which is incredibly ambitious and, and their track record is not good on, on, on it so far, but even if they were to achieve a million units a year, that is one tenth of one major automaker. And, yeah. and that perspective is really missing. And, and, you know, I think also maybe part of this is that, you know, uh, there's also this sort of global phenomenon, or certainly in the U.S. anyway, of of you know well-off people are kind of insulated from the reality that everyone else lives in, um, mm-hmm. and I think there's this belief that well you know this Tesla is perfect for me. Like why isn't everyone just buying one? And and Elon Musk even had this great quote that you know demand for Teslas is off the chain. It's just that you know people just can't afford them. Like <laughs> like that's the problem. We've done everything right. And and you guys yeah. are the screw ups for not having enough money yeah. to buy one of our six figure cars. And it's just <laughs> I, I yeah, it's that lack of perspective that really I think is is a big part of the issue. Yeah. Okay. We we're still we'll still mention the T company, but I want to move into uh the autonomous vehicle side of things because you don't just talk about Tesla, thankfully for your own sanity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you you do talk about autonomous vehicles because you have uh, the wonderful podcast, the Autonocast. Yep, it is a fabulous one, and we there's often times uh, we mention it on uh, the Motion Podcast and recommend uh, particular episodes. There will be links in the show notes to it thoroughly. If anybody, if you are remotely interested in autonomous vehicles and what is going on in that field, do go and have a view of the episodes they've got out there because it's great stuff. Is three people who know what they're talking about and between them help educate us all because no one is allowed to say too much without being caught by the other two, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. <laughs> I, I think- Although Kristen is your is the balance of everything. If, if she's not there, then I fear for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. <laughs> she's, she is the most balanced and nice person yeah. that I've listened to talking about this because she she's just going, well, hang on, yeah. you can't say that because of this. When... I'd happily go down the rabbit hole of no, no, I don't want balance. I don't want. <laughs> I don't want to put allow that in the argument. Yeah, yeah. No, Kirsten is like the embodiment of of tough but fair, which you know she's she's just great. And um, to be fair, you you and Alex need it. it. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, no <laughs> doubt about it. Both of us tend to get a little carried away, and uh, which is fun too. But but you're right. I mean, having that, uh, she's our she's our center of gravity, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the show's audience really took off when she came on board. Mm. How come autonomous vehicles? <laughs> uh you know uh, because it's there um <laughs> yeah uh, you mean how come how come i i became interested in them or or yeah well, what 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 was the thing that attracted you to it you know i think i've i've just i've always as i said sort of earlier in our conversation um i've always been looking for 
the areas that other people who write about cars and 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 in the car industry uh, aren't looking at. And I saw with autonomous cars pretty early on, fairly early on, and really when when Google uh, first showed their their Firefly car. I got really interested. That Firefly was that little koala-looking bubble. Yes, <laughs> I, I that was the point at which because I'd I'd heard about Google working on the on the technology, but I kind of never really took it that seriously. And that was the point at which I I was like, oh, this is this is a real thing. Mm. This is going to happen at some point. And I actually briefly considered writing a book about autonomous cars. Sort of at that point, I'm really glad I didn't because it was way, <laughs> way too early, and I was really clueless. But I did do a bunch of interviews right around 2013 that really got me up to speed to to, to just a basic level um, on what was going on. And then I realized, you know, we had the same phenomenon happening with autonomous cars that we have with Tesla, which is a lot of the people who are writing about it the most and explaining it to the public the most and to the biggest audiences come from the technology world. So they maybe, you know, have this perspective on how fast technology can change and uh, you know how software you know works and, and and things like that, but what they don't understand is sort of the other half of that, which is you know building the cars and the infrastructure and the regulatory environment and all these other things that cause making it work. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> just that little thing. <laughs> yeah. So I think I realized you know at that at some point there that you know there needed to be some balance in the, in the conversations around autonomous cars. And, and, and we've seen, you know, basically from about 2013 until about 2017, um, just this massive inflation in expectations around autonomous vehicles. And, you know, I, I saw that happening and, and I, you know, it's not like I'm, I wasn't ever really like, skeptical in that I think, you know, I thought this will never happen. I, I've always been convinced this is going to happen at some case, uh, at some point in some places, but uh, it's not going to be like the iPhone where one day the iPhone comes out and then everyone, you know, trades in their flip phone for an iPhone and the world is forever changed. This is not how yeah. cars work. And uh, and so I became very interested in the things that weren't sort of the the main focus for the folks in the in the tech media, looking at how automakers are responding to this, and and looking at how the supply chain and the suppliers are are dealing with this, and 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 then you know what are the challenges that aren't just right? You you have all of these resources going into basically what amounts to an experiment of you know the question: Can we make a car drive itself on a public road? And and that is one piece of it, and it's very difficult, and it takes a lot of of smart people and resources and all that. But then, even once you solve that experiment, there's all these other things that need to be understood and 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 addressed and and changed to make it work. So one of the first things that was ever, the first, the very first interview I ever did when I was thinking about writing this book was with a guy called uh, Sven Beikert, who was at Stanford at the time, and I asked him the very first question was the the same. First question that people are still asking, myself included, in interviews today, which is, you know, when when will autonomous cars get here? And he said, "You're asking the wrong question. The question is not when; it's where, because there are some places where the technology will be able to be deployed relatively soon, um, in mm. sort of these limited domains. You know, whether it's a retirement community or a college campus or high tech corporate campus or something like that, um, or or even you know, in, in certain lanes or, or or certain fixed routes or things like that." So, so the question is: Is where are these going to first be able to work versus sort of when? Because embedded in that, when do autonomous autonomous cars get here? Is that assumption that it's going to be a one-to-one -one replacement of cars today? 
right? Where yeah. it's a car that just serves all your needs, goes anywhere you need it to. Uh, and, and that's just not how these things are going to happen. It's going to be a very fundamentally different thing than cars as we know them. No, uh, I, I agree with you. I think one of the, particularly up until recently, I think one of the problems with the reporting that's happened, uh, because anybody who, who follows me will know that I am not overly impressed in how AVs have been reported, particularly, my real worry is particularly how it has been portrayed to the public at large who who don't investigate this stuff, who don't, who aren't geeky enough to to look at what's being said in these press releases and things like that, that they have this perception, oh, well, there's an autonomous car. It's, it's around the corner. Anytime now, we can all go out and buy one. Mm. For example, on a, a very well-watched chat show on a Friday night here, there's one. Uh, Stephen Fry declared that Tesla had a self-driving mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it makes me want to weep sometimes with this because – He's thought of by the general public as this he's a guy who knows a lot about tech. Right. So he he would know that that is not true. Yes. And I think he has couched that phrase to to allow people to understand in a half a sentence what he's talking about. Yep. And that is that is one of the major problems we've got with reporting autonomous vehicles because we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. No. And and if you look at the history of Tesla, uh, they they really example. And this is why. And you know, people ask me uh, like about the book, like sort of, you know, is the point to just take down Tesla? No, I think actually the the real value of Tesla and understanding both the good and the bad is that it says so much about this space and about where it's going to go from here. And I think that and, and and what the challenges are and and what Tesla has done is really tap into this misunderstanding about about how cars are changing and are going to change because you know in 2013 basically basically Tesla got into Tesla started talking about uh, and must start talking about about autopilot and self driving around the same time that I got interested in it which was 2013 and and actually at that time in very early 2013 he had a deal with Google where Google was going to buy the company because they were once again almost bankrupt uh, for several mm. – they'd, they'd been so several times in, in the previous 18 months or whatever. And he was very worried. This was right before their stock took off. And he clearly got a look at what Google was doing and also realized, wow, that this is much more real than I or anyone else had thought. And that was the – and then, okay, so then he you know got out from under the government loans. The stock went crazy. He killed the deal with Google. And that's when he started talking about autopilot. And he said, look, you know – they're working on this this really complex, hard problem. They're using LIDAR, and it's super expensive and super tough. And I think that we can get basically 90% of that with you know much less money on, and that basically it's it's going to be essentially everything you know that you would want out of an autonomous car, you know, but we'll have it in a couple of years. And and what it what it did was it took it played into this idea that you know autonomous cars are just going to be like cars today you're going to buy one and you're going to own it and it's going to be your car and when mm-hmm. you want to drive it you drive it and when you don't want to drive it you push a button and you can fall asleep basically and he basically what autopilot was the the first generation of it it was essentially an adas system that or it was two adas systems it was adaptive cruise control and a lane keep assist that through a combination of branding it as one system autopilot 
Um, and then also really reducing the legal constraints on it that, that lawyers impose on these systems at other car companies, right? Again, this is a, a risk thing. Musk is a risk-tolerant mm. guy, and this is why he takes risk that, again, pay off amazingly in the short term and create real problems in the long term. And this is another classic example of that. So he allowed it to have more control authority, basically more ability to take you know, sharper turns and, and, and just have more of a direct uh, control over the, the steering. And this created this perception, and I remember like it was yesterday uh, when this, this first became available to the public, all the media outlets had these amazing headlines and stuff where they're like, well, this is not technically really autonomous, but it's also driving itself. And here I am with my hands off the wheels. And it was this incredibly confusing messaging that ultimately, I think, was calculated. And, and certainly the, what the effect was, was people came away thinking Tesla is the first car company to make a, a self-driving vehicle. Now, it, yeah. it wasn't that. And what we've seen since then is that basically, you know, so basically there's, there's, there's two issues with, with autopilot. One is that, is that you can activate it on any road, including roads where Tesla itself says it's unsafe um, because it can't handle things like cross traffic. It can't handle stopped vehicles. And, and, but it, you know, so it's not like super crew, Cadillac super cruise, where you can only activate it on divided freeways where it's protected and, and you know, you will only deal with the kinds of traffic that you can, that, that the, the, the system is capable of dealing with. Mm -hmm. But then also the other piece that it's missing is driver monitoring, which is what ensures that in a, in an automated system that cannot fully keep you safe in all situations, that the driver has to maintain alertness and awareness. And the problem with these systems, of course, is that you know, people believe they're more autonomous than they are, and they also just get accustomed to the thing taking care of you, and you just stop paying attention. And there's no camera facing the driver to make sure that they're maintaining awareness and alertness. And what you see as a result is people driving into stationary objects at high speed and dying. And we've got mm. a number of these, these cases now. And so again, autopilot has been crucial to Tesla's survival, A, because it's, the PR has just been amazing. People believe it fuels this perception that that Tesla is a, a technological leader in autonomous drive technology that you know and it allows Musk to say in a couple of years you know our cars are going to be out earning us money so we'll finally make money because we can't make it by, you know building and selling cars so at least the cars will make money as robo taxis we'll finally make profit and and you know bid that stock up yeah but it also it makes people buy the cars right people want yeah. to buy the cars because of it and it provides the only real profit margin that Tesla makes because you know software profit margins are incredible and you tack that onto the car and even though the car itself is barely making money if at all you add you know thousands of dollars in in almost 100% margin autopilot or or full self driving uh revenue and that keeps the car company you know, profitable or, or, or viable, or at least the perception of viability. And again, this is sort of like the battery swap, where it's this technological facade that is propping up a financial facade. And again, it's also a short-term strategy that has been very successful, but that is not sustainable over the long term. When it comes to reporting on autonomous vehicles, what do you think we can do better? So I think there's a, a lot of things that everyone can do better. Uh, I think that <laughs> one of the reasons we had this sort of huge inflation and in, in hype and then this crash sort of after the, the Uber crash and some of these autopilot crashes, we had this sort of what we call the trough of disillusionment. I think one of the reasons we've had these ups and downs is because we in the media have not done a great job of covering this. And I think that the Tesla example is uh, very, uh, I think, you know, if you look at that, you realize okay, this is how they sort of hacked perceptions, right? And um, understanding how they hacked those perceptions is, is 
how we start understanding how to cover this better. And so I think mm-hmm. one of the things that, that Alex Roy um, has done a really good job of and, and, and I'd like to continue doing is, is really working towards developing um, a shared language, a shared vocabulary yeah. of terminology for these things, which is harder than you would think because there are these subtleties and like, you know, consumers see these things differently than engineers see them, who see them differently than regulators see them. So like, depending on how you're looking at these systems, their different distinctions are more important. And therefore the, the term, you know, terminologies are going to be different for different groups of people. But I, I think that that's something that, that a lot of work still needs to be done on. What is the difference between you know, what, what do we call autonomous? What do we call self-driving? What do we call driver assistance? Particularly in the sort of, you know, level three world, right? So we have these, these level systems, which are, again, great from a certain perspective, and they've been widely accepted. So that gives us a baseline that everyone can agree on. But they're also very imprecise and, and not particularly good from a consumer perspective. And, you know, when you get into the middle there, in that level two, three area, then it becomes very confusing about is this an autonomous car? Is it not an autonomous car? If it only drives itself, you know, within one lane that you activated in on a highway, and then as soon as you want to get out of that, you know, technically, yeah, the car is driving itself. Is it a self-driving car though? Not really, and especially if you have to maintain awareness about it um, and and supervise it. So uh, there's a lot of work to do on terminology, and I think that's one of the most important things. But I think most importantly, I think. People on the auto side need to make efforts to understand the technology. It's very complicated, both the, on the yep. software and the hardware side. I think that's been one of the biggest problems Yep, uh, is that there's been this really sudden influx of technology. Yeah. And somebody or, or, or the group of people who haven't had to deal with the level of technology that, say, you know, the, the technology reporters yeah. have had to deal with it's forever – and they've suddenly been expected, right, now, off you run. You must understand all this, obviously. Uh, go away and write good stuff, please. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I don't – I think it's it's demonstrated a, a, just the lack of understanding, not in a malicious way or anything like that, but it's just it's, – it, this stuff's complicated and hard. Yes. And to go to somebody who goes, well, actually, what I'm interested in is the torque steer when I put my foot down. Right. Or – how good it feels when I go over this road I know yes. to, right, I need to understand LIDAR, radar, you know, any other R's out there yes. <laughs> as well. It, I think it's been very hard for people, and that's why I think recently that's caught up. The, uh, the, the understanding now has caught up more, and we are getting more balanced writing where people are not just saying, yes, they're around the corner. They are... They are saying, well, actually, there are fundamental constraints yep. with the technology that we have and the development that we have. Because, you know, even people at Waymo are saying, well, let's just calm it all down a bit. This could take a while. Yeah. And and by the same token, you have people uh, who are used to reporting about the technology sector who all of a sudden have to understand all this stuff about not cars necessarily themselves technologically, but about the car industry and and yeah, and yeah. the things that constrain the car industry within you know, the broader social economic context, um, whether that's the time it takes to set up a supply chain, whether that's regulatory, you know, regular the regulatory part of this actually is is I think one of the most important because in the world of software, okay, there's regulations, but you know, a lot of times they can just be kind of ignored. And we've seen this again and again, you know, certainly with Uber. Uh, we've seen it with some of the the bike companies and and stuff too, and 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 you know 
companies coming from software, from a software background, coming into mobility and bringing the same attitude of, you know, we'll just shoot first and ask questions later. And when you're dealing with something like cars that kill in the United States, you know, 35,000 people a year, I mean, the cars don't kill them, but people are killed in and by and around cars at a rate of 35,000 or so a year. And that's with like fairly strict regulation. You know, the idea that you can come into a space like that and just ignore regulation like you can in social media or any one of a number of delivery, any one of a number of other software or app businesses uh, is just really fundamentally wrong. And I think, you know, Uber's crash last year um, really showed that how bad, how quickly and how bad things can get if you just sort of take that, that software approach of move fast, break things, rush in as fast as you can, solve the technical problem first, and everything else will sort of take care of itself. Yeah. That is, that is uh, not the way to approach something like mobility. Um, and then I think the other part of it too is, is, you know, the business part, you know, you've, you've sort of also had in the software world, you know, you make the software, if the software works, then each copy that you sell is basically hundred percent profit because it takes no, you know, you, you don't have to, there's, there's almost no incremental cost to, to each additional unit. And so, you know, these companies just rake in the money. And I think with autonomous cars, there's this belief that, well, we're turning cars into software and therefore, you know, they're just going to be these these money printing machines. And in reality, um, I think some of the smartest companies in this space are the ones that realize that making the business model for autonomous cars work is going to be one of the most challenging things, almost as challenging, if not as challenging, or maybe even more challenging in some ways than the technology itself. Yeah. On the one hand, you hear having autonomous vehicles will save this company. That's where all our profit will come from. In the next breath, there'll be people will be saying, yes, and then mobility will be affordable to all. And you think, well, that cannot work. Yeah. There is, unless one company owns it all, and, and that isn't going to happen. So there's, there's so many claims about autonomous vehicle that have been shown to be less robust mm -hmm. than perhaps the people making them originally hoped. Yeah. <laughs> or, or those who are, you know, trying to keep their stock prices up are hoping. And and I think it's I find it well not refreshing but I find it more more comforting to see that these sort of claims are being called out now and people people are actually investigating them and 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 working through them to say well these bits are actually do make sense but this bit doesn't yeah. and and I think that's what we what we need more of to I mean it goes back to our conversation earlier about you know the truth and facts and. I'm a fundamental believer that we must have that come out, otherwise we we can't we we can't make decisions, whatever the decisions are, unless we know these things. Yeah, and I think there's uh, there's been this uh, this thread throughout Silicon Valley history of fake it till you make it, right? Which is where you sort of show your vision for something, uh, even though you haven't quite figured out how to make it work, and then you raise enough money based on that vision and then you can make it work and then it works and then it makes all this money and your investors get rich. But that first step, there's sort of this sort of belief that, you know, if you stretch the truth a little bit or you show something that you haven't quite fully worked out, that's okay because, you know, once you get enough money uh, invested and, you know, you'll, you'll solve the problem. It's not a big deal. And, yeah. and again, I think in software, you know, in a pure software kind of thing that can work. 
with something where you're dealing with the real world, you're dealing with regulation, you're dealing with insurance, you're dealing with humans, you know, who who don't necessarily always act rationally, this is problematic. And I think Tesla is again a really good example of this. And of course, if you look at, at things like Theranos, right, um, that was another instance of <laughs> of that fake it till you make it approach being brought into a space where there are life and death consequences and and a lot of regulation. And, you know, there was this belief that, well, you know, they're a tech company and they've showed this thing and it looks amazing and it, it could change everything and maybe it will. And and they've convinced enough smart, influential people to join their board and, and to endorse them that they must be real. And I don't understand it. So they must understand it. Well, the reality is, was they, they didn't understand it. It never worked. It was all fake and they never made it. And I think, you know, certainly Tesla's approach to autonomy is similar to that. But I think there's a lot of that in, in tech. And I think that it's important that those of us who cover the space understand that that's the way a lot of this works and that you know it's really incumbent on us to understand sort of okay what if this is real and what if this is just a perception that's being created so this is another way in which i think tesla's story is really something that we need to learn from now because there's going to be more of this in the future and there's already a lot yeah. more of it beyond just tesla tesla isn't the only company doing this stuff but it gives us an opportunity to learn these lessons and 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 smarten up, frankly, um, so that yeah. we can, you know, like you say, sort of cover this in a way where we're really able to identify what's true, what's real, and what isn't. Because if we lose if we lose touch with that any more than we already have as a society, uh, things can get much, much, much worse. Yeah, we we have to ask the tough questions. We have to know what the tough questions are to ask these people, and by their reactions, we'll know how uh, realistic or what they're saying is is and we also need to understand the culture of a company or the the space they're coming from as you've made you you said there the you know the tech culture but also understand from that culture what is their motivation for doing the thing they are saying they are trying to do yeah and and i think we have to understand that all much better and we all have to um really we we have to question everything we're shown yeah and say is that right because with the technology that is out there and the brains that are working on this, because they are large brains, it's, you know, so a lot of the, a lot of stuff that we've got is is happened because clever people have thought hard about things, and you know, we've now got, as you said earlier, a phone that we can find anything on that we ever need to know ever. Yep. And and at the same time as playing something like Candy Crush, you know, that's that's amazing. That's amazing that that is now just seen as a normal thing. Yeah. <laughs> when so so recently it was not. I think the the flip side of the I think you're absolutely right. The flip side of this too is that because technology and, and the high tech sector plays such a is so popular and, and fascinating to so many people, it's an opportunity for cars and the car business and those of us who understand it to start to explain this stuff more. It's giving us an audience that we didn't have before. And I think in a lot of ways the car media in particular became very insular because it was like you know we were car people talking to car people and yeah. and that was the audience and that was the world that we lived in and i think now you know there's this whole other world that is much more mainstream in a lot of ways than than car enthusiasm and uh and so i really i what i want to see is is people you know yeah recognizing of course that you know there are some real issues with the with this tech approach to 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 cars um and and to mobility uh, but also that that they this creates an opportunity for us to now educate a, a broader audience about what cars are, where they come from, how they work, 
and and everything that surrounds them economically, regula- regulation wise, all these other things. And so I think there's it's a there's two sides of the coin there, right? And it's it's there's yeah. the opportunity, but then there's also that that challenge. And I think serving both of them uh, requires people to really understand, you know, cars in a deep way, you know, more than just how many horsepower the engine makes or something, but like really understand, you know, where do cars come from and why are they the way they are? Yeah. So that we can explain that to the people who want to change all that, because I think in a lot of cases they're trying to change something that they don't even understand. And so we need this, we need to be able to have a discourse. And I think that's, that's part of, of what's important here. It's not just that the tech sector is bad, although they have some very problematic aspects when it comes to, to cars and mobility, but, but there's, there's value for, for car people and for auto industry people to share their knowledge now that, that I don't think existed five or 10 or certainly 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I feel I need to, uh, to just announce one of my regular um, reminders to people. I am not against tech <laughs> in any way. I am not somebody who sits and cuddles a V8 at <laughs> night just because that gives me a nice warm feeling. You know, I'm, I'm, cars are phenomenal today. The fact that we can generally just get in our newish car and start it, and it starts straight away, and we don't have to go out and get a lump hammer and thump the engine a few <laughs> times to make it work, or go and fiddle with you know gauge meters or anything like that. We just get in, we turn the key, and it works for us. Is amazing. So there is a reason why car manufacturers are a little bit seen as a little bit conservative with the small C yep. in how they move things, because they have poured so much money and effort into making this thing that's quite expensive and very important to a lot of people for various reasons, just work and keep working. In all sorts of, you know, from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert, the same car will be expected to work. So, you know, if we take a step back and think about that, that's just amazing. Yeah, but but also, right, yeah, and and that that wouldn't be the case if companies were trying to get cars out as fast as, as possible, right? I mean, every yep. company could get out a car in 18 months if they really wanted to. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they yeah. would compromise but- all these things that make cars the way they are today. And and so I think that's... That would be called the 70s again. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's actually the amazing thing about, about Tesla is how much of what they're doing is sort of reflective of where the car industry was in the in the in the 70s in certain ways uh, certainly in terms of build quality but also just in terms of believing that you know they can automate an entire factory with robots uh, and have no humans working there i mean these are things that that the car industry has has sort of fantasized about and then sort of woken up from the dream and and realized it's it's fantasy and and matured and moved on and and you know the tech sector hasn't gone through that process and and so i think those folks uh, particularly who have been around the auto industry for a long time, have learned things that I think are very valuable to to the tech to, to the tech world. And I think the hardest part of a lot of this is fostering a dialogue. It's like creating a space where tech people and auto people feel equally at home, so that they can yeah. exchange these ideas. And I think that, in yeah. a nutshell, is what I'm trying to do at the at the drive um, with our tech section. And and we're at the very beginning of that. But but I think for me, that's that's the vision um, because I think it's really a, an important thing that needs to be created. Very best of luck on that one because uh, I think I think it is a very important thing. And I think if that can happen, then we as society will benefit so much quicker and in a much safer way. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Uh, I'm conscious that I am taking up so much of your time here. So I want to move on to the quick fire questions. Yep. So the first one is what currently excites you about the motoring world? Oh, man. Everything. Everything. I, I can't, <laughs> I can't pick a single thing. I mean, if I had to 
what I've always loved about cars is that is that there are so many it, you can use them as a lens through which to look at so many different things. And that was the mm-hmm. case when I started in 2008. And now that's like 10 times the case today. Um, there are there are subjects that I can I can explore and learn about that I never would have expected cars would bring me to. So I think that that expanding, you know, the expanding range of things to to think about and to learn about and to understand um, that is what what really excites me um, because it just never stops. There's just more every every day. And um, it's like the perfect situation for me. Well, that's awesome that you're still positive about everything, even <laughs> even after all this time and the amount of abuse you personally have had yeah. as well, let alone what you see that goes out there. So that's great to hear. So then, uh, consequently, what currently worries you about the motoring world? I mean, everything also. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I know, I, I think... It comes down to one thing, and I think it's it's what we were just talking about. It's the fact that that these conversations aren't happening um, between mm. sort of the newcomers to the space and the and the oldcomers. That it's that sort of Tesla, which is the main opportunity. This is where the rubber is hitting the road more directly than anywhere else in in the world right now between tech and the auto business. It's just full on collision. And instead of having a constructive dialogue about that. And, and sort of understanding, okay, what what does this side do well and what does that side do well and what does this side do poorly and what does that side do poorly and how do we combine these things so that we get the best of both worlds? It's turned into a, you know, a polarized fight. And, and that is the problem. If we cannot relearn how to have constructive discourse, things are not going to get better and uh things are just going to become more toxic and more divided and and i think that, i mean I think that's true in 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 areas well beyond cars uh, but i think yeah <laughs> our ability to have constructive conversations is the thing that worries me the most our lack of ability what has been your favorite car to drive and why was that um well i have to I have to say, you know, I think everyone's favorite car is the car they own. And I own a, a 1999 a BMW Z3 M Coupe, the, the clown shoe. Uh, mm-hmm. And I like it because it's it's just modern enough that it is fairly reliable, but it still is, feels very, very old school. It, it feels like driving an old kind of uh, rough around the edges kind of thing um, that will will punish you if you're not really engaged with it. And I think that's... I think there's there's sort of a a high point in cars. Uh, you know, obviously things have gotten better since 1999, but but I think there was something around that time, and and probably it has to do with the age I was at that time as well. I think that's something that is intrinsically linked to what people like about cars. But um, <laughs> but I think uh, things have become much more. You know, people talk about analog cars now. I mean, this is an extremely analog car, but it still has the things that you know the the modern conveniences. Let's call them um, of you know OBD two and just you know reliability levels and things like that. And uh, my other vehicle is a is a Toyota Tacoma pickup, a, a 2016, which I I told myself I would never buy a new car or new vehicle <laughs> uh, after my my BMW, and and I was wrong, and I'm glad because that thing has gotten me to places I would never have been able to go to before, and and as I said earlier, my I spend so much time in front of a computer. As soon as I have free time, I try and go as far away from you know computers and internet and cell phone coverage and people as possible. And um, that thing has enabled that. And um, I think I would not be able to have been able to maintain my sanity um, in recent years <laughs> if I had, didn't have that ability. So, so my my two cars are my favorite cars. I, yeah. Excellent. What has been your least favorite car to drive, and why was that? Oh, that's a my least favorite car to drive. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's funny when 
when I was when I was in college, when I first started dating my 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 partner now, who we've been together for for fourteen years now, and she had a a base model Dodge Neon, and that thing was Ooh. a real real modest vehicle. Let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, roll up, you know, hand roll windows, uh, no air conditioning, manual trans- I mean, just the the most. All the weight that was saved in that, though. Well, <laughs> it's true. But, you know, there was also something about it where it was like we didn't have to take care of it and we could just sort of drive the wheels off. I mean, we, and even with that, we we took that out to some places where. You know, I go out now in my in my truck, and obviously it's like nothing. But I remember it, it made stuff like feel adventurous, even though we weren't necessarily like getting that far afield. It, it just it, it was adventurous. So I mean, even though it was a terrible car in a lot of ways, and it leaked rain, and and we started getting mold in the the rear seats, it was just it was just an oh, absolute nice. nightmare in a lot of ways. But there's a weird sentimentality that I have around that too. I don't know. <laughs> so sometimes bad is good, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah can go so far yeah. and then it comes around the other way yeah. okay then what car would you like to own next uh, i'd like to own an electric car next uh, my my partner uh, has a relatively short commute um we've been meaning to get an electric car for some time both she and i very much love the uh bmw i3 um mm-hmm. myself even more than i did after having gone and seen it being made during the magical mystery plant tour which i'm sorry we didn't really get a chance to, to talk about much but uh the yeah i mean i think an i3 would be would be amazing i think it's an extremely unique car it's i i actually like the way it looks i know it's an uncom- like mm-hmm. unpopular opinion it's cool it's funky they're never going to make anything like it again you know kind of like my bmw so yeah i think an i3 would probably be the one that i would i would most want to get next oh, excellent choice uh, what is your favorite road to drive on and the thing is here you can name any and i am not going to have a clear nor will probably <laughs> most of our my listeners <laughs> so yeah. it's not like it's not like my normal guests are from the uk so we can we can mention an a road or a b road and people go oh yes i know that one well or something like this. here you have the opportunity to make something up. <laughs> yeah well if you want to get out uh, uh google maps for this this is uh most people well actually it's funny so there are some folks uh automotive journalists and the like who live in the area who know this road there's a road between uh let's see it's antelope oregon and the john day river sort of where it ends being or stops being really spectacular as a driving road is is um sort of the Clarno unit of the of the John Day fossil beds. But this is out in the middle of nowhere in central Oregon, um, which is one of my favorite places to go because it is so remote and there's no internet connection, so you can't see the comments. Exactly. Yeah. My, <laughs> I can come back to the the garbage. The garbage fire that is my Twitter mentions can just sort of burn quietly without my attention for a while. But there's just an absolutely spectacular driving road out there. Um and I think unlike what most people think of of when they think of Oregon, it's it's like California. It's beautiful. It's sunny 300 days of the year. It's a, a just incredibly winding road. You can see it in Google Maps. If you find Antelope, Oregon, and which is barely exists, that's actually where the Rajneeshis were. If you've seen that Wild Wild Country documentary, um, <laughs> this crazy cult that that were out there. So if you go if you go east from Antelope, Oregon, you'll see a road that is just incredibly windy, and it's beautiful. It's a spectacular road. It's it's well surfaced, which a lot of the roads around that part of especially of Oregon aren't and it's just it's just absolutely spectacular so yeah that that would probably get my vote excellent well we've never had that one before you'll be uh, <laughs> you'll be reassured to know okay then um what has been the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience pointless optional extra this is a a 
tough one. Oh, well, okay. So it's not really optional extra. It came with uh, the, the truck, the, the Toyota Tacoma that we bought. Uh, it was the off-road version. Um, and one of the things that came with it, and there was no delete option for this. Uh, <laughs> it was so pointless that you have to have it. Uh, and that's a GoPro mount on the windshield. I've never used it. I, I had a GoPro until recently, and I never used it because like, who wants to see what's what's out your front window i don't know i anyway <laughs> do they do they sell that a lot in russia maybe it's for the that market i guess so for, the, for the russian dash cam videos yeah. <laughs> or they're expecting you to really take it into the wilds and then you can you can create the the ed wild channel yeah exactly on YouTube i think it's and get all the clicks yeah yeah it's for <laughs> it'll it'll come in handy when i pivot to uh lifestyle journalism yes <laughs> Oh, excellent. Okay, then, uh, penultimate question. Who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? Well, I think Alex Roy is just one of the most interesting people in the world of cars um, because he really does straddle sort of um, traditional enthusiast world and sort of the new high-tech world. He works at a a self-driving car company, but he's also a guy who set a cross-country record in the E39 M5. He's just, he's, he's one of my good friends. Uh, I love him dearly. And it's just, he never gets, it never gets boring hanging out with him and talking with him. He's always got stories. I, I had the great luck of driving across India with him a couple of years ago, uh, which was one of the great sort of driving experiences I've ever had. <laughs> great, you say, <laughs> in inverted commas. <laughs> uh, intense anyway, yeah. Yes. It was memorable, <laughs> memorable, yes. yeah. Uh, and, the nightmares are still there. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's no one I would have rather done that with. Um, so I think Alex Roy is, is just highly recommended. And of course, I'm, I'm happy to put you two in touch if, if you'd like to. Oh, I, I would absolutely love to have Alex on. I think he is a, a unique and almost a treasure in the motoring universe because he does straddle the two worlds and he does know what he's talking about. So it's not just a case of he's dabbled in both. He He's very knowledgeable and very articulate. Absolutely, except for except for when it comes to Tesla, and with you know he's frequently wrong about that. But uh. well, yeah, you've got you've got to <laughs> rein him back on that. You know what can we say? Not a, see, people are grey. They're not black and white. It's not all good and all evil. Yeah, we're just shades of grey. Absolutely, and and I think he reins back some of my excesses on the subject. So so that's actually how our podcast started was really us fighting about Tesla, um, and we've evolved from there. So. No, that's awesome. Well, thank you for that. Right. What are the best ways for people to follow what you do? I'm going to have links to the Autonocast. I didn't get a chance to talk about Merge Now, which is another podcast, your new podcast Mm -hmm. as well. I will have links to that as well. I will have a link to The Drive as well. Yep. Where else can people follow what you do or get in touch with you? Obviously in a nice way. Obviously in a nice way. (laughs) I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, It's actually something I'm constantly vacillating between whether I, it's the greatest thing in my life or the worst thing in my life. Um, <laughs> I, and I'm on Twitter uh, at Tweetermeyer, uh, T-W-E-E-T-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R. Um, follow me there. Uh, pretty much anytime I write anything or, or have a new podcast episode or, or whatever, I, I put it up there. And um, and I share a lot of stuff there that, that I don't ever write about because um, I simply don't have the time, uh, in part because I'm spending so much time sharing stuff on Twitter. I think it's a little <laughs> bit of a cyclical thing there, but that, that's the that's the best place to, to follow my work. Well, I will have a link in the show notes to that as well. Um, and it, this just 
oh, I could I could talk to you for hours and hours, Ed. And as you just hinted at there, we have not touched on so many things <laughs> because I'm a dreadful uh, interviewer. And not but at all. but thank you so much for coming on here. It's been absolutely brilliant, and I and I am delighted that you came on because I've been itching to talk to you for ages. Uh, keep up the good work, please, and uh, don't let the negative comments get you down too much. Thank- go go off more into the wilds. <laughs> <laughs> no, no fear of that. Uh, thank you so much. This has been really, really fun. I've really enjoyed it, and um, I, it's it's been really a a, a pleasure uh, to talk. And that is the end of part two of my conversation with Ed. Thanks once again to Ed for coming on Rearview and chatting with me. I hope you found these episodes as fascinating as I did. And if you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is The Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support everything we do at The Motoring Podcast in a few ways. So go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about this show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of these wonderful people that come on here. So until next time, that was Ed Niedermeyer. I've been Andrew Clues and safe motoring.